0: That's Ezekiel chapter 34, starting at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered, on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There, I will feed them in justice.
1: That's Acts chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 17. Now from my letters he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Lord Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him
2: to the ship. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may. For well, how would you end that sentence? With the rest of your life, be it long or short, if only I may, what? What do we want to do with our life? Is there anything we have to live for? Something more important, maybe even, than earthly life itself? Well, this afternoon, we are in one of the leading banking centres of the world to continue consider this question of what is valuable. Now, I don't mean the City of London, or Wall Street, or Singapore, but Ephesus Because in the first century, the city of Ephesus was about finance. For a start, there was a flourishing silver exchange. Do you remember Demetrius a couple of chapters ago? But more than that, this great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world, well, it doubled up as a leading bank. In fact, it was known as the Bank of Asia. So the city of Ephesus was flowing with wealth, full of people who had made it wanted to maximise and protect their assets. Well, we're not quite in Ephesus. We're just outside on the nearby beach called Miletus, the place there. And here is the Apostle Paul. He has summoned the elders of the church from Ephesus to come to him there. Wouldn't be surprising if amongst that group, there was maybe a couple of bankers, maybe a senior partner. And here, Paul wants to speak to them about what is of value. And if you can picture the scene, this was a momentous, emotionally charged meeting. Paul had lived in Ephesus, worked side by side with these people for three years. He knew them well, they knew him well. So you could almost say what he's about to tell them, they actually knew it all already. But this was the last time they were going to see each other. Paul had this opportunity for a final message and charge to these Ephesians whom he loved so much. And he wanted to impress on them what was of deep and lasting value so that they would never forget it. Paul sums up his ministry amongst them there in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now in saying this, Paul didn't expect the Ephesian elders or the members of that Ephesian church to be just like him. But he did want his life to be an example and a challenge for each of them and for us on where to invest our lives. So we can start with that very same verse, verse 24. We are told that Paul wanted to use his life there to testify, that is to speak, to proclaim, to declare, because Paul had come to realise the value in word-spoken ministry. So the Ephesians knew Paul. From the first day he'd set himself set foot in Asia, verse 18, he goes on to tell them in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable notice that word profitable Paul wanted to give them value he wanted to help people speak of what would be of advantage to them so they would grow in their assets well what did that look like well for a start Paul's testifying therefore was for all people You see, Paul doesn't just wait to see who he bumps into in his daily life and then maybe say something to them. We've seen all through Acts such intentionality. He has traveled to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to Antioch, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, even we're told all of Asia. Why? To testify. He had something to tell them. And he would tell everybody, all sorts of people. We've had a senior proconsul, a wealthy trader, a slave, a prison guard. And here in verse 20, we're told that even when he was in one place, Ephesus, he would speak in a range of contexts, whether in public or house to house. Verse 21 says he testified to both Jews and Greeks. Point being, of course, in the first century, Jews and Greeks were deeply divided as today. And the hostility between them was cultural and religious. And yet he had something to say to people of whatever background or culture or religion. Here in London, deep divides between people. We interact, or at least cross paths, with people very different to us. What do we think we have to say to them? Paul knew he had a message of value for everyone. And that's underlined in verse 26 when he says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Notice again, in Ephesus, Paul says he spoke to all of you, to everyone. And so Paul says he's innocent of the blood of all of you, which reminds us what's at stake, why this message is so valuable. Because all people are under the judgment of God. God. Surely, if there is anything that could rescue people from that, it would be incredibly precious for all people. Next, we see that the gospel, and so Paul's ministry, is for all of life. So look again at verse 21. Paul was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance. That is, Paul was telling people, your life needs a complete turnaround to bring it all under the good rule of God. What a blessing. Of ourselves, we live lives essentially stumbling in the dark the whole time. We are clueless. If only someone could tell us what makes me tick, what makes the world go round, what works, what we're here for, what our place is. Paul preached repentance for all of life. Sia Khaleesi last night led the South African rugby team to victory as he lifted that World Cup. Clearly visible, written on his strappings, was the word Jesus. Why did he do that? Four years or so ago, he realised he was in desperate need, whatever his rugby talent might be. And so he says, quote, I decided to lose my life and find it in Christ because the word of God is for all of life. And so Paul then wouldn't shortchange people. His word ministry was from all of the Bible. So verse 20, we've already seen, Paul says he did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable. And then look down to verse 27, where he says, he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. By which he means essentially, Paul did not leave out bits of the Bible. Those tricky bits, those challenging bits. The bits I don't want to hear, the bits I think my hearers might not want to hear. Notice twice, Paul says he did not shrink back. Because we know what the temptation is. Paul is well aware of what the world thinks of the gospel and the Bible's teaching. But Paul knows God has given us all of the Bible for our good. It is all valuable to be heard. And so we see Paul persevered in gospel word ministry, whatever the cost. Verse 19, we're reminded by him that there were tears, that along the way there were plots of the Jews. That's a summary we've seen in these chapters. What that actually meant was there were riots and beatings and prison and death threats and stoning. And being left for dead. And Paul knows it's not over yet, verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Why does Paul keep going, keep speaking? Because the default priority in our world is to avoid suffering. Although having said that, not always. We are aware of the athlete who will train hard. No pain, no gain. All of us will know the employee, the colleague, who puts in the most enormous hours neglecting family, friends, because they want to climb the ladder. Anytime we see somebody willingly accepting hardship, if we think about it, if they could have avoided that, then it's obvious what they are valuing. The Friends actor Matthew Perry died this weekend. In his recent memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, he asks this question. Do you know what St. Peter asks to everyone who tries to get into heaven? And he went on, quote, Peter says, don't you have any scars? And when most would respond proudly, well, no, I don't, Peter says, why not? Was there nothing worth fighting for? Many Christians speak of the value of word ministry, of testifying. And yet, when it comes to committing to it in such a way that that might mean the loss of other things, well, then what matters to us becomes evident. But not for Paul. He knew what was of value, true value. So he kept on testifying, whatever the cost. Because in this, Paul is serving the Lord of all. Did you notice how that came out even as he spoke? Verse 19, as he summarised his life in ministry, he began by saying it's all about serving the Lord. Verse 21, Paul speaks of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he says, The ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. Verse 25, Paul goes about proclaiming the kingdom, the news about the King, Jesus. And Paul knows that what the living Lord Jesus wants right now is for the news about him to spread to the ends of the earth. We've seen that all through Acts. Paul knows that, so he will do what he can to that end. So, what a message! It's for all people, for all of life, from all of the Bible, whatever the cost, to serve the Lord. But what then is this message all about at its heart? This is the summary Paul gives us. This is the gospel of the grace of God. Have you seen Saving Private Ryan, the classic war film, Captain Miller sent on that mission? to save Private Ryan, but he is fatally wounded. As he dies on a bridge, Captain Miller says to Private Ryan, earn this, earn it. Then decades later, we are shown Ryan with his extended family as an old man visiting Captain Miller's grave. And full of emotion, Ryan speaks to that gravestone and says, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge, I've tried to live my best life, the best that I could. I hope it was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what you've done for me. Then Ryan's wife walks over and he says to her, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. What a crushing burden for him to have had to live through life. We can't do that. But notice in our key verse, verse 24, Paul says his aim until his dying day is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is astounding. This is what the world around us just does not understand. Here is a passage so full of language of value and profit. And at this point, Paul is speaking of what is completely free, the grace of God. No payment, no charge, no works, no repayment. All done, the free gift of God. Which is why Paul will go and tell this to everyone. Because whatever someone's background, whatever they might have done in the past, whatever they are like, this message is for them. Because the message is not what they have to do or be like to get to God. Paul knows he can tell them about God's grace that God has done everything in Christ for us. The world around us assumes that if something is free, it can't be worth very much. Paul has grasped, this is something that is free, that is of infinite value. So of course, you must accept this free gift, of course, but then realize, if you've understood it, Here is a message to give one's life to promoting. We don't have to do it to earn anything from God. We don't have to. It's all been done. It really is like nothing else on earth brings such value, such profit to people. The value of word ministry. Paul has more to say next. We see here value in the church. We've seen this all through Acts, this emphasis on God's people, the gatherings of them, because the church is the flock. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The word overseer here is another description for the elders of the church. And God, Holy Spirit, himself has given to these men particular responsibility to oversee members of the church. So as we read this today, I guess what we read here will have particular direct application to people like me with some oversight pastorally in the church. But Luke is recording this to be heard by all of us. So there'll be implications here for everyone, because what we're about to read is meant to shape our understanding of, well, us, of the church, its value, and what's important for these people. And, of course, many of us here do have some form of leadership responsibility within this church. Well, this is for you. And we could say even more than that, Acts has shown us that all believers are given God's Spirit that we might speak God's words to others. And with that, there'll be more here for us as well. So who then are the church, us believers as Christians? The description here is the flock, the sheep. And the point being that the shepherd is God himself. Overseers are appointed as under-shepherds, under God the shepherd. And the point is to care for the flock is a weighty, Responsibility, because we're told God obtained the sheep with his own blood. That is through the death of God's own son. What is that saying? This flock is immensely valuable to God. God cares about them. God cares about us very, very much. And do we realise the flock is in danger? Verse 29 I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You see, not everyone will see the flock and think that is a group that needs to be taken care of. There'll be others who think, well, they're ready to harm them, even to devour them. Now, such people presumably might seem nice, respectable, sensible, which is why Paul has to give us this warning, because in fact, they are wolves, fierce Wolves. And it really is a warning. Paul doesn't want us to think, oh well, these must be people coming from outside. Verse twenty verse thirty. From among your own selves will arise such men. So presumably, therefore, it could be ministers in the church, it could be fellow church members, it could be those we've served alongside in Christian ministry. Someone might have a fine Christian C V, if you can put it like that, but no guarantee. It could be the last person we'd imagine one close to us, when we realise they are a wolf. Now all that sounds very serious, because it is. That is the point. And what is it then that these wolves do? Read on verse 30. Will come in among you, not sparing the shock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Remember, God is our shepherd. He cares for us, the sheep, by speaking to us and so giving to us all that we need. Wolves aim, by what they say, to take sheep away from the shepherd. They twist. So presumably wolves may well use Bible-sounding words, but actually they're twisting it to suit their own ends. Wolves don't want you to trust the shepherd's voice anymore. Wolves want sheep to follow them instead. And that will lead to harm because wolves devour. In the Church of England service for the consecration of a bishop, the archbishop hands the new bishop a Bible and says, Give heed to reading, exhortation and doctrine. Be to the flock of Christ a shepherd, not a wolf. Feed them, not devour them. And yet earlier, just this month, the bishops of the Church of England commended for use prayers, which plainly contradict and undermine the teachings of the Bible. And so they take people not to God, but away from him. That is what wolves do. So how then should we respond? Whether as church leaders or Christians? Well, notice how Paul began verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So pay attention to yourselves. That is listen to God's word and act on what you hear. Repent. Believe it. Live according to it. And as you first do that, then you'll be able to pay attention to the flock. That is, make sure that fellow believers get what they really need, which is to hear the voice of the chief shepherd, Jesus. And with that, Paul says, be alert, verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Do you remember Eutychus, who we met last week? Do you remember as Paul spoke the word of God, Eutychus nodded off with fatal consequences well, Paul is saying here, don't be an eutychus. Be alert for your own sake, but also for the sake of others. Never take God's word for granted, which means keep speaking it to one another. So, Paul has delivered now his charge to these Ephesian elders. Given the value of the flock, pay attention, be alert. So, Paul is soon to leave them. But now Paul is looking to the future. Where is his hope that these precious people will be kept spiritually safe? And we can see here that Paul's ultimate hope is not in the end, in these Ephesian elders before him, however capable and godly they may have been. The focus of Paul's confidence is on the word of his grace. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So what will keep the church in Ephesus and the Christians there, the church of St. Helens and the people here safe? Well, it'll be God, our shepherd himself, who will do it. And the way he will do it is through the word of his grace. Notice again, Paul almost can't seem to stop himself highlighting that word grace to go along with that gospel of the grace of God we heard about earlier Because again, the point is the same. What keeps us going in the Christian life ultimately is not our efforts or what we do. It's about what God does in his ongoing kindness to sheep like us. And he does this through the word of his grace. And what does that word do? A couple of things. First, in particular, it builds the temple of God's people. I commend you, says Paul, to the God and the word of his grace which is able to build you up. Throughout Acts, we've seen Luke wants us to see believers, us as a temple, the temple that God is building. So not that temple in Jerusalem, the days there are numbered. Not also like that great temple of Artemis in Ephesus. Don't look at that, however the stunning, the architectural glistening, the gold and the silver. Instead, Acts has continually pointed our attention to the true temple, which now is God's people. Do you remember the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. Each of us, as we believe, become a brick added to that temple. According to this verse, we are those who are sanctified, made a part of this new building. And the point is this building is not only growing in size, although it is, it's also growing in strength as the word of God's grace builds us up. But that's not all the word of God's grace does. It also delivers the inheritance. So let me be blunt. How is your inheritance looking at the moment? Our world gives itself to building up the nest egg, adding bricks and mortar, preserving health, keeping up relationships, such are perceived to be valuable, to give us long-term security. And yet, such things will only get us so far. And only for so long. How is your inheritance? End of verse 32. And to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Again, here's this gospel logic. What is free? The gospel of grace makes us rich beyond our imaginings. Forgiveness and life today with trials. But one day every tear wiped away, a welcome into that perfect place to enjoy relationship with our King forever. As the church, we are guaranteed to receive this inheritance. So we've seen the value in word ministry. We've seen value in the church. And as Paul closes, he shows us value in life. Have you ever thought about it? The Apostle Paul was an exceptionally able and talented man he grew up with impeccable credentials his early career to speak like that was progressing very well early in acts remember he had the backing of the powers that be even he was their go to man paul could have commanded a high income he would have thrived in a senior position and if you were around paul that much would have been obvious And we know Paul, like many others in the first century, went to live in this banking center of Ephesus for three years. What did the Ephesian church see in that man there? Verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So everyone, of course, went to Ephesus for the gold or the silver. Or verse 35 goes on, the apparel, which is a technical term. It means clothes or iPhones or holidays or cars or investment portfolios or property. Basically stuff. All the stuff that fills worldly eyes and minds and hearts. But Paul knew lasting value was elsewhere and you saw it in his life. What did he pursue? Verse 35, he says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Who does he mean by the weak? No doubt those sidelined by the world. Also, the weak would be the struggling sheep, those limping Christians. He helped them. But also, there are those who are so weak because they have no inheritance at all. So when it comes to the day when these people will stand before Christ, as it surely will, they will be empty-handed and they won't be able to do a thing, however impressive they looked like in Ephesus. Ephesus. Paul wanted to help such weak people to give them what was of true value. Why did he do it? Verse 35 again, he says, We must remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And here is the question. Do we actually believe what Jesus says? Do we believe it is more blessed to give than to receive because Paul did believe it. The most valuable thing he had, the, well, he had was the gospel of the grace of God. So therefore he used all his other resources and time and opportunities and energy to give it away. Well, with that, and after a final prayer, Paul really, really must be on his way and leave these Ephesian elders behind. They wouldn't see him again, at least in this life. But until they saw him in glory, they must never forget that those three years with him had shown them where true value is to be found. They had witnessed what Paul's words in verse 24 looked like in practice. Paul said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you as our shepherd who has given us so much, even your son's blood, to make us your own. We praise you for your glorious grace, freely giving to us what we do not deserve and yet is of such value even into eternity. And so we dare to pray that we, like Paul, would judge our lives rightly and so give of ourselves in service of others, helping them to hear your voice. Amen.
3: Um, So first, um, let's start by going back a couple of weeks to Apollos in chapter 19, yeah, in chapter 19 uh, or 18. Um, so before Apollos's correction, um, he was preaching accurate things about Jesus. This question says, was he actually a Christian?
2: Yeah, was he a Christian, or is that the way we're meant to think about it? So the example that might help is think of John the Baptist at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Was he a true man of God right from the beginning? Well, yes, he was. He was a prophet. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet, in Luke 7, he had to be corrected because he wasn't sure if Jesus was the one to come. So in Acts, we are in a well, in a unique time in the history of God's people where we are moving from the old covenant times to the new covenant times. So we've got to keep remembering that. So do you remember Cornelius in chapter 10 is called a God-fearer? So it's not quite right for me to think non-Christian Christian because we are now in this new age of the spirit and this is a really exciting time to be alive. I think that's Luke's point. That there were people who did know the Lord before Beginning of you need to read Luke really to answer that question. So Simeon at the beginning, do you remember he was hanging on to see the Lord's Christ? And when he saw Jesus and held him in his arms, he was thrilled. And that's what we're meant to think. They were God's people, genuinely God's people, in the old covenant the old testament. But with the coming of Jesus and the Spirit and the news going out, we are in a much, much, much better place. So the question with Apollos, I think he probably he was one of God's people, put it that way but there was so much more for him. And so he was instructed in the ways of knowing Jesus. And therefore, that is the news we are to pass on. So the point is the message for us to tell the world is all the world was waiting for, even before Christ, is now here. And it's a wonderful time of blessing. Trust in Christ.
3: Thank you. Uh,
2: Moving forward to
3: Eutychus in chapter 20. I actually got two questions on Eutychus here. Um, So we understand that Eutychus is meant to teach us not to fall asleep, to keep listening to the word, Um, But if we just use this to teach us about spiritually falling asleep, wasn't it a bit harsh on Eutychus to have to die to teach us this lesson? Um, Or this one, uh, should we understand him as being asleep in the faith or um, a sinner? Like, How do we understand Eutychus?
2: So again, it's worth thinking, what is the purpose for which, well, this happened and then Luke recorded it for us? So... In the story of Acts, remember, we're going to Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as we kind of reach Ephesus, we've reached the ends of the earth. But the Lord Jesus hasn't returned. So what now? What about this time between the gospel reaching sort of the ends of the earth and Jesus' return? How should we as Christians behave? There's lots of other issues. How do we interact with the authorities, whether Jewish or Gentile? Lots of issues. And Eudicus is there as Paul is going, remember, encouraging the churches. So that's a priority in this time, to keep speaking God's word, even to believers, to keep them going. The purpose of that passage is to, well, okay, shock us, wake us up. We're meant to think, wow, did he really have to die? And you're meant to think, that is how serious it is not to listen to God's word. That if you're in this period professing to be a Christian, but think, I'm fine, I'm a Christian, I don't really need to hear what God has to say. That passage is trying to say, well, wake up. That is a spiritual life and death situation. Are you going to keep listening to the shepherd or not? So wake up and listen. That was one of the questions. What was the other one? The
3: other one was um, how are we to think about him? How sinful is Luke betraying him? Is he a Christian falling asleep in the faith or is he a sinner falling out the window?
2: So Luke isn't trying to answer all our theological questions at this point. I think he's trying to say it. it's incredibly stupid. <laughs> That might be a better way to put it. Remember, Paul is the prophet. God has brought his word with Paul to Troas. The gathering is meeting together. Remember, that's where the action is, where the lamps are, like the temple in Troas. How stupid it would be to have that opportunity to hear God speak and not to listen. So bluntly, yes, it is sinful. But I think that passage would say, just don't you realize how utterly foolish that would be, so don't do it. While take the encouragement that if we've done that, God, in his kindness, in his grace... Will use that very same word to wake us up or to bring life from the dead again.
3: Moving forward to this week, um, you said that Paul preached the whole council of God. And this question says, What was the whole council of God before the Bible books were finalized? Yeah,
2: very good question. I intentionally just made it very simple and said, which essentially meant the whole Bible. So you have to ask, how at different parts of the Bible do we know what was the whole council of of God. And so for Paul, clearly it was all of the Old Testament. And you can also be well aware that he knew he was a prophet from God. So what he spoke authoritatively was God's word. He also knew the other apostles and he understood they were apostles sent by God. So therefore he essentially had what we had in the New Testament, whether it exactly you know, overlapped. So it's not hard to work out that he would know what the whole council of God was. And therefore, Luke would know that as we read this today, that would be application for us to take the Old Testament scriptures, which Jesus affirmed and held to, and then his authoritative messages in the New, which are the apostles, like the original 12 and Paul. And together, that is the authoritative counsel of God for the church today. So put very simply or the bible
3: okay and now moving forward to thinking about wolves. come on
2: our weekend away next weekend we're going to think more about that yeah
3: <laughs> more details in the service sheet um, so coming forward again to thinking about wolves yeah. um, obviously quite a serious thing and yeah. this questioner asks um someone who i went to university with is almost certainly a wolf um, they have been to theological college um, they've done lots of learning on this uh, they kind of want to stay friends but they constantly want to poke fun at biblical christianity how do I interact in that situation?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Look at verse 31 again, where Paul, remember, is talking about the Christian church in Ephesus. He says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. The word admonish means warning, really, but it can include correcting and those sort of things. As we're here, notice the connections with Eutychus, remember, he was the one that needed to be alert. He was the one that at night wasn't listening. So now Paul here, with the Ephesians, for three years, he didn't cease night or day to admonish with tears. So therefore, when we are with fellow believers, or those who are professing to believers, with tears, so that shows Paul wasn't being arrogant or high-handed, but we do need to speak the truth to one another to keep talking about what the Bible says. So therefore, that's what's driving our relationship, our friendship, any unity we profess to have. If someone wants to be a friend and they want to be Christians, but let's just never talk about Christian things, well, Paul would continue to admonish graciously, but with tears. So not every conversation, but clearly Paul would make sure that the Word of God was still at the heart of relationships, even between Christians, and that is the way I think we stop one another becoming wolves, because. We're all so dopey and we'll quickly drift off and think our own thoughts, including us, obviously. So that's why we do Tuesday evenings, but also food at fives and other times we meet up. We do talk about the Bible with one another to make sure we keep listening, keep thinking about it, keep seeing what it has to say, and that will include correcting one another. So I think the assumption was even in Ephesus, this great church needed continual warning. So don't think like that. Remember what the word says come back and let's go this way with tears because these are believers and he loves them. But we need to help each other in these sort of ways. We've probably got time for one more. Um, so you
3: mentioned the, uh, the value of word ministry. Um, how have you warmly and winsomely explained the primacy of word-driven ministry to Christians who might see other matters of equal importance like material care, mental health care, cultural engagement, etc.?
2: I mean, you could just turn to this passage, couldn't you? And just see what Paul has said, why it matters, why he speaks, what it can do in terms of rescuing from hell, because that's what judgment is, but also that that is how God shepherds his people, by speaking. And that's what he's done. He's given speakers of the church both under shepherds who are elders or overseers like me, but also one another. So just in this passage, the priority becomes clear that the word is how God will care for his sheep. If you listen to the word, it will have all sorts of practical applications. And word-centered ministry, I hope, and I think I have seen, is often incredibly in all sorts of other ways and engages with issues. If the Bible raises them, we must. All those sort of things. And But the word is what will keep us, well, biblical on all those things. But the word is also what will keep us on what really matters, even as we do other things, that it's the blood of Christ that we might be rescued from God's judgment and kept until we gain that inheritance. And the thing Paul is excited about is this inheritance at the end that we will receive as God's people and we want to make sure that we and others are there with us to enjoy that.